Okay, it's time for a quick quiz to see how much you know about dividend investing. My question is this, how many years of consecutively increasing a dividend does it take to become a dividend aristocrat? Put your answers in the comments below, and then keep watching to have your mind blown by the answer, which I bet will surprise you. What's up everybody, Jen X Dividend Investor here. Today in my 19th stock reveal video, I'll be doing a deep analysis of realty income my 7th largest dividend stock by portfolio value of the 25 I own. That means that after this I only have 6 stocks to go. Also if you're somebody who likes this video or Realty Income, then please squeeze that like button as a thank you to me for making this extensive deep analysis video. I also want to invite you to join my dividend discord channel that now has over 220 dividend investors in it and is growing quickly by the day. One thing I've learned in life is that you should surround yourself with successful people. Well, this is your chance to be around other successful investors. We have multiple millionaire investors in the chat, along with brand new investors and everything in between. We have all ages from teenagers to people in their 60s, and they come from all over the world, including Russia, Kuwait, Germany, England, Canada, Belgium, Romania, and a slew of others. Don't wait, take action now. Your tomorrow will be based on the actions you take today. Join the Dividend Discord channel using the link in the description below. It's free, and it's a community of people who are interested and excited to invest in order to better their futures. Please feel free to check out the timestamps in my description below if you want to jump straight to my portfolio, as well as to see screenshots of the Home Depot dividend check I received after I released my AT&T video last week. Okay, now it's time for another deep analysis. Realty Income, ticker O, is a $23 billion market cap, $1.4 billion revenue real estate investment trust, aka REIT that invests in single-tenant commercial properties in the United States, Puerto Rico, and the United Kingdom that are subject to national retail property leases, aka triple net leases. They only have 165 employees. How many 20 plus billion dollar companies can you name with less employees than that? They have many brand name tenants including Walgreens, LA Fitness, Dollar General, Walmart, and a slew of other names you would recognize. These tenants span convenience stores, drug stores, health and fitness stores, dollar stores, quick service restaurants, movie theaters, and grocery stores. A real estate investment trust is a company that owns, and in most cases operates, income producing real estate. A triple net lease is a lease where the tenant pays for property taxes, insurance, and maintenance rather than the landlord. So REITs are a pretty simple business model. They are basically a spread business. They borrow money at low interest rates, and then using real estate, they charge tenants to be in their commercial properties at slightly higher rates and then make money on that spread. So management needs to be good at allocating capital to best enable the recurring income that comes from their spread business. REITs generally must pay out an amount equal to at least 90% of their taxable income in the form of dividends to shareholders, at least in the US. That also means that they don't have a bunch of spare cash lying around, so in order to grow, they're either taking on more debt or using more equity. I've experienced with both residential real estate investments and commercial real estate investments, and one of the reasons why I prefer commercial real estate over residential is because of triple net leases. It is simply more passive to be the owner of commercial real estate than residential, where you have to deal with tenant and property issues more frequently, or you choose to hire a property manager to deal with your real estate, but then you lose some money doing that. I personally prefer dividend investing over real estate investing. You make great money with real estate and it's hard to beat the tax benefits, but dividends are far more passive and liquid. So why do people invest in real estate? Well, real estate has historically been one of the best investment vehicles to create wealth. This graph from a Fortune article shows that real estate is the third largest contributor to the world's billionaires. Finance and investments are number one. 
So I see REITs as a combo of both of those. One nice thing about real estate is the reality that the world's population keeps growing, which generally leads to higher demand for land and properties. Plus, the ability to buy real estate with debt allows investors to generate great returns, which are often predictable cash flows of rental income. So REITs give me the liquidity and no management hassle I want, combined with some of those fundamental aspects of real estate that I want. Beyond that, I get some sector diversification along with a solid recurring source of income. Speaking of real estate, Realty Income manages around 6,000 properties. I saw this document on Simply Safe Dividends summarizing some key differences between REITs and common dividend stocks. We see that REITs have a low diversification compared to other businesses, which range from low diversification to high. REITs have medium to high yield, whereas most other companies are low to medium yields. REITs have low to medium volatility compared to other businesses which are medium to high. I would have rated other businesses as low to high if I had done this article. REIT dividends are taxed as regular income as compared to others which are often taxed at capital gains rates. And one big difference is that REITs have rising shares outstanding over time versus most other companies where you want to see their shares decline. Another thing you'll notice if you peruse REIT financial statements is that their assets, debt, and equity can be quite high. A term you will often hear with real estate is cap rate, which is short for capitalization rate. That is basically the expected return on a real estate investment. I like to see a 6 to 7 cap, but it varies based on location and type of real estate, as well as based on market conditions. Here for realty income, we see that in 2010 they were at a 7.9% average cap, but have been trending down to 6.3. So not a trend that I like to see, but it's still at reasonable levels. One thing that is helpful to understand is that the higher a REIT's share price, the lower its cost of equity is, which means they can sell less new shares in order to raise capital for growth. So the higher the share price, the less additional dilution is needed as capital to acquire more properties to then grow their cash flow. Another interesting aspect of REIT is unlike many other industries, they are somewhat dependent on their share price to help them grow. If a REIT's share price gets too low for too long, then I get concerned about liquidity issues. It basically means that its cost of capital can rise above their cash yield of the new properties it can buy, making growing not financially reasonable. Now there is an important new concept called Funds from Operations, or FFO, which is the term that investors use in order to describe the cash flow of a real estate company or REIT. And another important one is AFFO, or Adjusted Funds from Operations. I'll elaborate on both those a bit later. Sometimes you can find weak REITs that try to grow for growth's sake, which often puts them in a bad situation using high cost of equity and high cost debt. Then their AFFO per share falls due to excessive share dilution, which then also means the payout ratio will increase, making the dividend sustainability a concern, and then all that means future growth becomes more challenging. That's why it's crucial for REIT management teams to be long-term investors and managers, so that they allocate their debt versus equity capital raises appropriately. If share prices are high, then it's often best to fund more acquisition growth with equity rather than debt to help delever the balance sheet. Or if share prices fall, then they might look at using debt more relative to equity to enable growth. This helps keep dilution in check and helps keep the AFFO per share and the dividend growing, which we want to see. One reason I like to invest in blue chip REITs like Realty Income is because they have a long history of showing that they can grow in all market conditions and interest rate environments. Another useful aspect of REITs to understand is how they're taxed. Now I'm not a tax advisor, so don't take this as accurate tax advice. However, REITs in the US pay out at least 90% of their taxable income as dividends to their unit holders. A unit in a REIT represents a proportionate fraction of ownership in each underlying property. Since those dividends are actually the taxable portion of the income generated by the REIT-owned properties, 
the company is able to pass its tax burden to shareholders rather than pay federal taxes itself. So for the most part, REIT dividends don't meet the definition of a qualified dividend, which means that REIT income taxation is at your marginal tax rate or tax bracket. That's why I choose to hold REITs in my tax-sheltered accounts, unlike my qualified dividends which I usually hold in both tax-sheltered and taxable accounts. It's not necessarily a bad idea to own REITs in a taxable brokerage account, but it does make taxes more complex. So something you should look into. There are differences in how REITs are taxed and how you as a unit holder are taxed in the U.S. versus internationally, so realize that I'm focused on the U.S. for this video. REITs often have a higher yield than is typically found in fixed income assets. They also tend to be less volatile than traditional stocks because they're more aligned with the real estate market. Now there are three basic categories of REITs. Mortgage REITs, equity REITs, and hybrid REITs. So mortgage REITs are REITs which provide financing for income producing real estate by purchasing or originating mortgages and mortgage-backed securities and earning income from the interest on those investments. Mortgage REITs are sometimes thought of as carrying more risk due to their exposure to interest rates. Equity REITs own and or rent properties and collect rental income, dividends, and capital gains. Realty income is an example. And then there's hybrid REITs which combine the first two. And then you can further break down REITs into residential, office, retail, healthcare, and mortgage. So you have lots of options of what kind of REIT you want to invest in. Do you want to own something that makes income from rent and management fees? Do you want to buy something that invests in real estate debt like mortgage-backed securities and mortgages? Do you want to invest in shopping centers or hospitals and healthcare or hotels and resorts or what? Each has its own pros and cons. One aspect people love about realty income is that they pay a monthly dividend rather than the normal quarterly and they actually trademark the name that they are the monthly dividend company. Realty income managed to increase their dividend through the big bank recession a decade ago and through the dot-com crash from about two decades ago. You would think that everyone would want to own stock like realty income. Interestingly, polling company Gallup found that only 55% of Americans reported that they own stock as of April 2019. This chart shows us how the financial recession in 2008 took people out of the market. I understand that because the dot-com crash in 2001 took a bunch of my friends permanently out of the market because most of us lost over 50% of our net worth at the time and many of us lost more than the average person since we were focused on high-tech stocks rather than have diversified portfolios. Read.com estimates that only about 43% of American households are invested in REITs, either directly or in their brokerage accounts, or indirectly in their retirement funds. So if you're an investor in the market, directly or indirectly, you are already doing better than about half of America. That being said, the normal metrics you use to evaluate a REIT are different than other companies, so I'll be using different trends and ratios in this deep analysis. Okay, let's review who the significant institutional holders of O stock are. The top institutional shareholder of O is Vanguard, holding about 51 million shares, valued at almost $4 billion, which means they own almost 16%. The largest individual shareholder I found was John Cates, their former CEO, who has around 159,000 shares, which means he can drip around $434,000 a year, or $36,000 every month, just for holding his shares. Okay, let's see how some of the key industry leaders are ranked by market cap and yield and number of consecutive years of increasing their dividend. So we see that realty income is at 23 billion, 3.8% yield and 25 years of consecutive increases. WP Carry is at 13.5 billion, 5.3% yield, 18 years of increases. Verit is 9.8 billion, 6% and zero years of increasing dividends according to dividend.com. And then National Retail Properties is 9 billion and 3.9% yield, 
and they reported 30 years of consecutively increasing dividends. I was going to use WPC Carry as the next biggest read I found that also had a good amount of consecutively increasing years of dividend increases, but when I looked at its portfolio of properties, I felt that national retail properties was actually a better fit, so I'll go with that. There's also a bunch of other reads, but I didn't feel they were as useful to use given their niches didn't directly compare to realty incomes. So for example, Boston Properties is more focused on office space and Duke is in industrials and etc. So I'll go with national retail properties. They have around 3,000 properties spanning around 30 million square feet, including brands like Chuck E. Cheese, Arby's, AMC Theaters, Circle K, and a bunch of others. Now, O is in the real estate sector and is in the Equity Real Estate Investment Trust industry, also known as REITs. You should be aware that REITs have been the best performing asset class in the last two decades, according to JP Morgan's 2018 report, doubling the return of the S&P 500 and were four times the return of the average investor. They delivered 9.1% per year over 20 years versus the average investor. That's incredible, especially considering that time frame includes the 2008 banking recession and the early 2000s dot-com crash. How is it possible that investors only average 2.6%? Well, that's because most buy stocks when they're high and they sell low in a panic, and sometimes sell and never get back in. So why have REITs done so well? One reason, in my opinion, are interest rates, which have been very favorable. So with REITs, you can get some inflation protection, and you normally get real estate appreciation. That also means that if interest rates shoot up, then REITs can be negatively impacted. Neither realty income nor national retail properties are large enough to make the Fortune 500. Okay, let's jump into a brief history of realty income. Realty income was founded in 1969 by William Clark and Evelyn Clark. Their first acquisition was a Taco Bell restaurant in the early 1970s. The company used cash to purchase land needed for stores that required real estate to run, and then leased the property to the stores long term. In 1994, they went public. In 2015, they were added to the S&P 500 index. Okay, now it's time to answer the question that I posed in my intro. Did you know that there are actually two dividend aristocrat lists? You heard me right. There is the list that everyone knows in quotes, which is the S&P 500 dividend aristocrat index, which requires that you be on the S&P 500 and that you consecutively increase your dividend for 25 years and that you have a minimum market cap of $3 billion. The S&P 500 dividend aristocrat index was launched by Standard & Poor's in 2005 and has historically outperformed the S&P 500 index with lower volatility over longer investment timeframes. But there is another list called the S&P High Yield Dividend Aristocrat Index, which Realty Income was added to in 2015. The High Yield version tracks the S&P Composite 1500 Index, which contains three times as many stocks as the S&P 500 Index. Another difference is that the High Yield version contains stocks that have increased their dividends for at least 20 consecutive years, mind blown. I never knew there were two dividend aristocrat lists with different requirements to join them until I was pouring through some old Realty Income's 10K reports and a 2005 version talked about how they were now a dividend aristocrat. And I said to myself, how is that possible? And that's when I dug into it and saw the nuance. So one thing I wonder is if they'll start updating their 10Ks going forward to be on the more well-known dividend aristocrat list. Okay, let's look at some of O's core business strategies. A new strategy for Realty Income has come from their CEO. He's pushing Realty Income to invest in Europe. In May, they announced that they had acquired 12 properties in the UK for £429 million under long-term net lease agreements with a grocery chain called Sansbury's. They estimate that $11 trillion of commercial real estate stock is in the European market, of which only $3 trillion is owned by professional real estate firms. 
Europe has some ridiculously low interest rates, so if they start expanding and go for fixed, locked-in rates, their returns should be awesome. Another strategic shift due to the CEO was to increase engagement with investors. He feels that by increasing the number of shareholders, it will help keep their cost of capital low, which becomes a strategic advantage. They also have a strategy of maintaining a conservative capital structure. About 75% is equity and 25% debt. This has helped protect them during tough economic climates, like in 08, and also enables them to fund growth when they see a deal they want. We see that debt is primarily of unsecured notes and bonds. Okay, let's jump into the financials. By now I hope you have learned that financials and ratios are just one aspect of what I like to understand about a business. I think it's a mistake to be completely dismissive of a company's financials and metrics and ratios, just as I think it is a mistake to solely rely on them. I think you need to understand the business and industry of what you're investing in, and you should also understand the financial metrics and trends. So evaluating a business is part art and part science. Always try to understand the business, the risks, the industry, and the management, etc. Now there are four key financial areas I like to understand when I'm analyzing a business, and they are number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? Number three, do they have too much debt? And number four, how's their profitability? Let's start with number one. There are normally six main things I like to review when answering the question, is a company growing? But for evaluating a REIT like O, I'm going to look at a few more. So number one is revenue growing. Number 1.1 are the tenants that provide the revenue strong. Number 1.2 are the tenant property types diverse. Number 1.3 are they geographically diverse. Number two are earnings growing. Number three are their numbers of properties increasing. Number four is their occupancy growing or staying high. Number five is equity growing. Number six is cash flow growing. Number seven is the dividend growing. Number eight, how are the shares outstanding trending? And number nine is the stock price growing. So let's jump into number one. Here we see that both realty income and national retail properties have great trends of increasing revenue. O's TTM revenue is at 1.4 billion and their 2020 estimate is for 1.67 billion. National retail properties TTM revenue is 660 million and their 2020 estimate is at 710 million. So we see good forward estimates for both of them. So let's jump onto number 1.1 are the tenants that provide the revenue strong. Here we see realty income's revenue breakdown. Walgreens is the highest portion of the revenue at 5.7% of total revenue. Then it's 7-Eleven at 5.1% and then FedEx at 4.4%. Their tenants represent 11 different industries. It's useful to think about their tenants a bit and ask yourself how robust they are. Do you think they can last in different market conditions? Will e-commerce eat them up? Quality tenants are key when you're thinking of investing in a REIT like O. I feel good when I look over this tenant list. Another thing I look for is if there's an over-reliance on a tenant for providing too much revenue. I don't like to see above 7% and the lower the better. And as I mentioned, we see their largest tenant is providing 5.7% of their revenue, so I'm still comfortable they'd be okay if they lost that tenant. You can also glean some reasonable assumptions about the portfolio diversification strategy by analyzing what they have. So number 1.2 are the tenant property types diverse. We see a mix across retail, industrial, office, and agricultural, but they are heavy into retail. I'd like to see them temper their investments in retail for a while. Number 1.3, are they geographically diverse? We see that they have good geographic diversification spread out across many states without too much revenue coming from a single location. Now let's see how their net income is trending. So on to number two of nine, are their earnings growing? Now when evaluating most companies, net income is a common way to assess how much profit is being generated and how easily the company can cover debts and pay dividends. However, when evaluating REITs, net income is not particularly a useful metric. What you should pay attention to is funds from operations, or FFO. 
However, let's still look at net income since it's a metric that management reports on. And I'll show you FO a bit later. Those TTM net income was about 392 million, a 15.6% year-over-year increase. National retail properties net income for the 12 months ending September 30th, 2019 was 0.23 billion, a 22.5% decline year-over-year. So realty income's trend looks nicer here. It's also good to try to understand how often their properties will have rent increases and how much and such, but I'll let you dig into those metrics. Let's move on. So number three of nine, are their numbers of properties increasing? Here we can see how the number of properties in each of their portfolios have increased over time. We see that realty incomes have been growing faster than national retail properties here, so that's good. Number four of nine, is their occupancy growing or staying high? I also like to look at how occupancy rates have trended over time. Obviously more occupancy is better. So here we see almost identical occupancy rates in the 97 to 99% ranges, with national retail properties having a slight advantage over O, so great numbers. It's also important to see what the remaining weighted average lease term in years is. We see a trend that is slowly decreasing from 11.4 years in 2010 to 9.2 years in 2018 for realty income. So that's a minor issue that we would be good to watch for as we don't want that getting too low. There's a lot of great data you can dig into, so you can go a lot deeper if you want. That's what she said. Sorry. You can analyze average rents and see how much they are increasing or aren't increasing. You can look at the average interest rates and average maturities and how soon loans are coming due. You can look at large expenses and see how much the fees might be. All this data helps you paint the picture better. You might want to dig into understanding how much they're paying for maintenance and how that is impacting financial metrics. Maybe you'll find systemic red flags that cause you not to want to invest. I also like to understand what their property acquisition and divestiture strategies and trends are. Many REITs enable FFO growth through acquisition. Sometimes they'll divest their less performing properties to help get new properties which hopefully perform better. Okay, onto number 5 of 9, is equity growing? Here we see that Realty Income's shareholders' equity for the quarter ending September 30, 2019 was $9.3 billion, a 20.8% increase year-over-year. National Retail Properties' shareholders' equity for the quarter ending September 30, 2019 was $4.6 billion, a 13.5% increase year-over-year. So they both have solid trends of increasing shareholders' equity, which I like to see. Okay, let's move on. Number six of nine, is cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about cash flow. Now for REITs, free cash flow is artificially low due to depreciation, amortization, and growth capital deductions, which could lead you to conclude that a REIT is overvalued. But let's still take a look at cash flows. So we see that both O and National Retail Properties show nice trend lines of continually increasing operating cash flows, which should include their cost of financing and free cash flows. Speaking of free cash flow, someone asked me to explain levered free cash flow. So leverage free cash flow is the amount of money a company has left remaining after paying all of its financial obligations. Levered free cash flow is important to both investors and company management because it is the amount of cash that a company can use to pay dividends to shareholders and or make further investments in growing the company's business. The amount of levered cash flow a company has can be negative even though operating cash flow is positive. This occurs when the amount of operating cash flow a company generates is insufficient to cover all the financial obligations. Even if a company's levered free cash flow is negative, it does not necessarily indicate that a company is failing. It may be the case that a company has made substantial capital investments and has yet to begin paying off at a level the company expects. As long as the company is able to secure the necessary cash to survive until its cash flow increases due to increased revenues, then a temporary period of negative levered cash flow is both survivable and acceptable. Okay, now another new topic. Let's talk about payout ratios, starting with non-REIT companies. Payout ratio is most useful for evaluating the sustainability of a stock's dividend. 
A payout ratio above 100% means the company is paying out more than it's earning, which generally means the dividend isn't sustainable, which makes me think a cut will come. There's no guaranteed percentage you should look for. Ideally, I'd love to see something under 50%, but I'm usually still fine seeing 70%. Now let's talk about REITs payout ratios. Since REITs are required to pay out most of their income, then instead of the standard payout ratio, I'd like to look at the FFO payout ratios to give me some insight into the sustainability of a REIT's dividend. Also, this leads to their payout ratios being higher on average. So seeing a rate with an 85% FFO payout ratio doesn't concern me. As long as it stays consistently under 100%, then I'm not too worried thinking it's too high or unsustainable. So let's do a couple examples. First with a normal company and then with a REIT. So for most companies, the general formula for payout ratio is quite simple. Take the company's annual dividends paid out per share and divide them by earnings per share and multiply the result by 100 to convert it to percentage. So let's look at Johnson & Johnson. They pay out $3.80 per year per share in dividends. So let's take that and divide it by their EPS, which their TTM shows is $5.25. So that comes out at 72%. So why can't we use the same calculation for REITs? Well, the reason is that real estate earnings contain depreciation, which shows up as a huge expense on an earnings report, although it doesn't actually cost anything. So we use FFO, which adds depreciation back in and does some other tweaks to better model how profitable a REIT actually is. So we want to use the per share FFO, not the per share earnings, when we are calculating payout ratio. They list their FFO per share as $3.12, so that means their payout ratio is 87%. When we calculate national retail properties, we get 75%. So both those percentages are fine for REITs. Okay, let's move on to number 7 of 9, is the dividend growing. So here we see that both stocks are up from where they were a year ago. Let's ignore PE and forward PE for REITs. Realty income's three-year dividend cadre is 5% compared to national retail properties, which is 4.5%. O's five-year dividend cadre is 4.2% compared to 4.1%. O's 10-year dividend cadre is 5.3% compared to 2.8% for NNN. So O has a nicer dividend growth. O pays a dividend yield of around 3.74% on the day I did this, as compared to a similar amount for national retail properties, which is at 3.84%. So O's estimated 10-year yield on cost will be 5.7% compared to 5.85% for national retail properties. O's estimated 20-year yield on cost will be 10.5% compared to 6.7%. And O's estimated 30-year yield on cost will be 17.6% compared to 8.8%. O has 25 years of increasing dividends and national retail properties has 30 years. So both are awesome. And I already mentioned their payout ratios. And as always, don't use any of these numbers to make investing decisions and double check all info that's presented. Now let's see how their shares outstanding have trended over time. So number eight of nine, how are their shares outstanding trending? Please watch my AT&T video if you want to learn more about shares outstanding. Here we see that realty income went from 80 million to 320 million in 13 years. And national retail properties went from 55 million to 165 million in 13 years. Now if I normally saw a trend like that of increasing shares outstanding, I'd be concerned, but I'm not for REITs. A big difference between a normal company and a REIT is that REITs retain very little earnings. So to grow, they use cash flow, external debt, or equity to grow. Usually it's equity and debt. Good REITs have good management teams, and those teams work to generate a cost of capital that's lower than the cash yield on new properties to enable sustainability and growth potential. Since the amount of cash flow per share should be managed to increase over time, along with dividends, I don't worry about a rising share count too much, as long as it's relatively appropriate. As the cash flow goes up, you tend to see capital appreciation in your shares. Let's look at their total returns. So number nine of nine is the stock price growing. 
Let's compare O to national retail properties and the S&P 500 using dividend channels, total returns, drip calculator. So this models what would have happened if you invested 10K around 24 years ago into realty income, national retail properties, and the S&P 500, which is the longest duration of data their calculator allowed. This assumes you reinvest dividends. We see that your 10K in O would have turned into about 301K, an amazing 2,907% return. With national retail properties, your 10K would have turned into a great 215K, a 2,053% return. And you would fared the worst with the S&P 500, with your 10K turning into 87K, a 769% return, which is still great. So realty income and national retail properties both look incredible here, with O coming out on top. Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year, which is asking if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. It is important to compare ratios in most metrics in the same industry. Current ratio is equal to current assets divided by current liabilities, and is a measure of a REIT's ability to pay its short-term debt obligations. A current ratio with a value below 1 is a red flag that a REIT might have insufficient capital on hand to pay its debts. A value above 2 might indicate inefficient use of assets. So O's current ratio is 2.45 versus the industry median 1.01, and they're ranked higher than 78% of companies. National Retail Properties' current ratio is 8.39 compared to the industry median 1.01, and it's ranked higher than 96% of companies. So both of them look comfortable here, and I didn't see anything concerning about realty income's usage of assets. Number three, the next main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it's taken on too much debt using the debt-to-equity ratio. Debt-to-equity shows us how much leverage O is using. As an example, if 75% of a REIT's portfolio is financed with debt, then a 25% drop in real estate values could wipe out a shareholder's equity. A low debt-to-equity will help protect a REIT, to some degree, from market fluctuations. We see that O's debt-to-equity is 0.76 compared to an industry median 0.81, which ranks them higher than 53% of the industry. National Retail's property's debt-to-equity is 0.72 versus the industry median 0.81, which ranks them higher than 66% of the industry. Remember, debt-to-equity is total liabilities divided by total equity. If the ratio is greater than 1, the majority of assets are financed through debt. If it's smaller than 1, assets are primarily financed through equity. I like to see between 1 and 1.5. A high debt-to-equity ratio is often associated with more risk as it can mean a business is pushing for fast growth with debt. That being said, the appropriate debt-to-equity ratio varies depending on the industry because some industries use more debt financing than others. Capital-intensive industries often have higher ratios. Another metric we could calculate is debt coverage, which tells us how much money a REIT takes in relative to its debt payments. So a debt coverage ratio of 5 to 1 means that for every $1 in debt payments, the REIT brings in 5. A high debt coverage ratio means that the REIT will be able to pay off its debt and still remain profitable during bad economies. Generally, a debt coverage of 4x or more is what I look for. O is one of the strongest REITs out there when I look at the various metrics, which is why I chose to invest in it. Other useful metrics to consider are using debt to EBITDA, and O is around 5.3x, and credit ratings, and they are A3, A- BBB plus, but rather than remaining on debt, let's talk about an important metrics, funds from operations or FFO. So to me, FFO per share is kind of like cash flow per share. It adds in non-cash charges tied to appreciation, which makes sense because property values tend to go up rather than down as time goes on. Or to elaborate a bit, for most non-REIT companies, depreciation is a non-cash charge that allocates the cost of an investment in a previous period. But REITs are different from most fixed plant and equipment investments because properties lose value less frequently and instead often appreciate. So net income includes and is reduced by depreciation, which makes it not as useful as funds from operations, which excludes depreciation. 
But one problem with FFO is that it does not deduct for CapEx required to maintain the various properties, so it doesn't represent exactly what we're trying to get at, which is the accurate cash flow remaining after all expenses and expenditures have been accounted for. So instead, some folks look at adjusted funds from operations, or AFFO. AFFO basically takes out the cost of running a property portfolio from FFO. However, the message used to calculate AFFO varies between REITs, so it's not always an ideal way to compare REITs to one another. Number one, it's a more precise measure of residual cash flow, and number two, because of that, it's a better predictor of its future ability to pay dividends. There are a slew of other metrics that some people like to calculate and look at, such as AFFO as a percentage of assets or AFFO as a percentage of revenues. I'll dig into FFO and AFFO metrics a little bit later. Okay, let's move from their financials to their community involvement, charitable giving, and their environmental, social, and governance work. In 2018, Realty Income donated to 44 charities, such as Habitat for Humanity, and they contributed over 800 volunteer hours, and they recycled over 28,000 pounds of paper. You have to realize their low employee count, so that's actually a healthy amount of volunteerism. Okay, let's move on to their executive leadership team. I want to give you another helpful trick to gain some insights into a company and their management team, which are Glassdoor reviews. Glassdoor has a variety of information about a company, and like anything, you can't simply take it at face value. But when you find broad trends from many insiders, it can help start painting a picture of how employees feel about various executives. You can also gain insights into things like if the sales staff is annoyed with the tech staff and insider concerns about their products, etc. And again, I would temper your enthusiasm for the data if it's limited, and some corporations entice their employees to leave positive reviews. But after you've looked at enough Glassdoor data, you can start seeing useful tidbits of data. I find it very useful and reasonably accurate to paint the picture of what a company culture is like before joining a company. Their top execs have an average tenure of around 10 years, which is pretty good. Let's look at Realty Income CEO Sumit Roy. He's been with them for about eight years and was the president and COO before taking on the CEO role in late 2018. As COO, he oversaw investments and business operations, so he must have a really good handle on all core functions of Realty Income. He has his BS and Master's in Computer Science, which I like to see. So one way we can assess the CEO is on how his stock has done since he's taken office. Here we see Realty Income in black, National Retail Properties in blue, and SPY in purple. We see that Realty Income has performed the best, followed by National Retail Properties, and then SPY. So great job at the CEO based on this metric. Okay, let's jump into concerns and risks. Now there's a variety of risks that I feel are important to be aware of. If there's a recession that causes tenants to default or move out, then that would obviously negatively impact REITs like O. Interest rates are also a risk. If the Fed starts on a path of increases, it gets more challenging for REITs. REITs sometimes face environmental issues, such as hazardous materials they are found to be responsible for. Since REITs are somewhat tied to their share prices, then if the stock price goes down, then the cost on their debt leverage can get worse, which means their margins can get squeezed. There are a variety of nuances with taxes that you need to be aware of when you invest in REITs, so I'll let you dig further into that on your own. Changes in tax laws and unanticipated tax liabilities could adversely affect the taxes they pay and their profitability. Increasing regulatory issues may adversely impact them. Litigation or legal proceedings could expose them to significant liabilities and damage their reputation. Finally, their competitors are always seeking to outdo them. So those are some of the risks I thought of, but dive into the annual reports and Google if you're so inclined to be more thorough. So big question, is it worth buying at today's price? Please watch my 3M video if you're interested in learning more about how you can value a business and more details about how you can use discounted cash flow to estimate how much a stock or business is worth paying for. To build a projection model for O, you could look at same-store existing properties and then make assumptions for acquisitions and redevelopments and divestitures and such. Then you can look at all the revenues and expenses and project those out, along with dividends as part of FFO and AFFO, 
and make assumptions around debt and equity financing based on cash balances and such. You can actually use a DCF if you figure out unlevered free cash flow and tweak terminal value based on some equity assumptions. However, instead of using DCF, many folks like to use net asset value when we talk about REITs. To calculate net asset value, or NAV, we need to make a somewhat subjective valuation of a REIT's assets. So one way to calculate it is to find out the per share value based on the value of assets. So if we subtract liabilities from assets and divide that by the number of shares outstanding, then we can get the intrinsic value, which is the NAV over the outstanding shares. A REIT's NAV divided by the number of outstanding shares tells you its intrinsic value per share. Theoretically, intrinsic value and share price should be the same. When we compare a REIT's intrinsic value to its share price, we can then figure out if it's spendy or if it's a deal. Let's move on. Now, normally I like to look at PEs when I analyze companies, but not for REITs. For REITs, price to FFO or price to AFFO are more important. A REIT's total return comes from two sources, dividends paid and price appreciation. Expected price appreciation can be broken into two further components, growth in FFO or AFFO and expansion in the price to FFO or price to AFFO multiple. I'll show price over FFO and you can calculate price over AFFO if you're so inclined. So how do you use these? Well, I like to compare these ratios to one another and like PEs, this isn't exact science and market conditions and the REIT industry subsector will kind of impact these. Obviously, we want to avoid buying into a multiple that is too high. So the AFFO and FFO are both growing faster than price for realty income, assuming I did my math right. So if FFO goes at 15% each year and the ratio is maintained, then the price should grow 15%. Another useful exercise takes the reciprocal of the price FFO multiple, which is one over price over FFO, which is FFO over price. And then looking at FFO, we see that in 2016, realty income was at 3.12%, and in 2017, 3.28%, and in 2018, at 3.83%. To evaluate the REIT's price, we can compare the FFO yield to the market's going capitalization rate, or cap rate, and our estimate for the REIT's growth in FFO over AFFO. The cap rate is a general number that tells investors how much the market is currently paying for real estate. For example, 8% implies that investors are generally paying about 12.5 times, which is 1 over 8%, which is the net operating income of real estate property. Focusing on realty income for a moment, I also calculate 1 over AFFO and its reciprocal. You can use AFFO over share trends to see how Realty Income is using its equity financing. We want to make sure they have strong enough cash flow to cover as the number of shares keep increasing. Okay, another thing you might want to look at is how their dividend yield has trended over time as an input into your buying decisions. Here are the last 10 years of dividend yield trends for O and National Retail Properties. So we see O's dividend yield is 3.77 and National Retail Properties dividend yield is 3.95. Both are okay dividend yields, albeit a bit low relative to how they have been, and low for REITs. If you want to learn some nuance on how I'd read this chart, then watch my Kimberly Clark video. We see that both of them have been trending ever so slightly downwards, so less of a value, relatively speaking. Let's look at what analysts at MarketBeat said about O and National Retail Properties. O is on the top in this chart. So consensus rating today is a buy, six months ago is a hold, share price today is $72.36, and the consensus target is $81.75, which is a 13% upside. For national retail properties, consensus rating today is a hold, six months ago is a hold, share price today is $52.12, and the consensus target is $50.17, which is a 4.5% downside. So analysts have been getting more bullish on O over the last six months, to the point that they now recommend a buy, as they see a bit of over 15% upside on it. But they have stayed neutral on national retail properties. Let's look at recent insider trading. We see a variety of transactions by their officers and directors. Nothing jumps out as disconcerting or material to me. 
please watch my Southern Company video if you want to learn more about how to read a Form 4 dealing with insider trading. So when did I buy O and what price would I want to see before I'd be more compelled to add to my position? And as always, don't take this as financial advice. So as I've mentioned in previous videos, many of my stocks I first bought in the 90s, some I held on to, others were trades. Then something happened which caused me to sell out of my position for a short period of time before I re-established them. It's an interesting story for a future video. So I got back into O in early January of this year with the lump sum at $62. Please watch my 3M video if you're interested in learning my take on lump sum investing versus dollar cost averaging. I feel O is too pricey right now, but I'd like to increase my portfolio's real estate holdings a bit, so I'm tempted to drop some more into it, even though I think it's too expensive. It's great how so many of its per-share metrics are trending in the right direction. I just love realty income and it's one of the few stocks, other than Disney, that my wife loves. When I ask her why she loves O, she says she doesn't know why, she just loves it. LOL. It has some nuanced tax implications where some portion of the common stock dividend is considered a non-taxable distribution and other parts are considered ordinary income, but I just leave it in my tax sheltered accounts to avoid dealing with those headaches. Consult your tax advisor to learn about it before making any investment decisions. That all being said, I've almost stopped adding capital to my dividend portfolio as it now drips more into itself than I can add, and so I'm starting to move my cash into other private endeavors. I was saving cash for when we have the next big crash, but some opportunities outside of the stock market have come up that I'm playing around with. I say I've almost stopped buying new shares with my spare cash because sometimes I'll dump another lump sum into something if I'm feeling spunky, but I'm really trying not to at this point so I can just let my portfolio do all the heavy lifting. So what do you think? Are you a bull or a bear on O? Are you going to buy, sell, or hold? Or keep looking? Before we dive into my portfolio update, I want to share my perspective on monthly dividends versus quarterly. I understand why people are really interested in monthly dividends. It feels better to get a dividend check every month rather than every three months. It's also better from a compounding perspective. But I want to caution people not to weigh the frequency a dividend is paid out as very relevant to whether they invest in a company or not. Instead, I advocate for focusing on quality rather than cadence of dividend payout. You can have whatever payout frequency you want by simply using your cash from your quarterly dividend as you desire. What I mean is, if you want to be paid monthly, then take your quarterly payout, divide it by three, and then just use that amount monthly until the next quarter, and then do the same thing again. Voila, you just turned your quarterly payout into a monthly payout. Heck, if you want to get paid daily, then divide your quarterly checks by 90 and then you'd be getting paid daily rather than quarterly. Bottom line, focus on quality, not on if something pays monthly. I've seen too many people get burned chasing yield and targeting monthly payers. Okay, let's jump into my portfolio. So here we are in a copy of my portfolio where I've removed some of the stocks that I haven't revealed yet. So here we added O, it's 9.5% of the portfolio. And then this slice is Consumer Staples Food Beverages, which is Coke at 9.3%. This one right here is Consumer Discretionary, which is McDonald's, Starbucks, Home Depot, and Disney at 14.9%. This is Consumer Staples Household, which is Kimberly Clark and Colgate. This one is Utilities, SO at 7.1%. Energy with Chevron and Exxon at 8.2%. And then we've got healthcare with AbbVie and Pfizer at 6.3%. Financials with Goldman Sachs and Travelers at 4.8%. And industrials with 3M, Leg and Cat at 17.8%. And finally, communication services with AT&T at 9.6%.
since I've made the video, things have kind of moved around the portfolio. So now we have realty income here and 3M up top and then AT&T. 3M's been on a tear lately. So I have 1,249.9 shares of realty income. And it's up in the last year. PEs don't matter too much for REITs. We see their annual dividend is $2.73. This is green because they have a, a uh, they increased their dividend and they'll be paying out soon. Uh, they pay monthly, so the next payout date will be January 15th. Dividend yield 3.73%. Three-year dividend cadre is at 5%. Five-year dividend cadre is at 4.2%. And the 10-year dividend cadre is at 5.3%. And I manually calculate it to be 4.32% for the five-year. So that means that the portfolio's average weighted dividend yield is 3.45%. So that's the starting yield of the portfolio. And the average weighted five-year dividend cadre is 7.55% for the portfolio. So, oh, I have $91,552 of O. And it drips $3,412 a year, which means that it drips $284 every month. And again, ignore that. So, portfolio is now at $965,413. of the, what is it, 19 of the 25 stocks in the portfolio, so six more to go after this. And 25 years of dividend data. And the beta is a very low. So that brings the overall portfolio beta to 0.68. Market cap pretty low on O, so the portfolio's average weighted market cap is 136.4. Okay, now let's take a look at the dividend check I've received from Home Depot since my AT&T video from last week. I edited out my account numbers as well as any dividends I've received from stocks I've not yet revealed. So I hold Home Depot in a tax-sheltered account. Since I've turned on my trip for Home Depot, it bought another 0.58 shares of itself taking me from 93.55 shares to 94.13 shares. So this quarterly dividend payout just increased my annual passive income by about $3.16 a year. Assuming they don't increase their dividend, then this would mean that just by holding Home Depot in my accounts, my annual passive income will increase by about $12.62 a year. But it'll be higher than that since it compounds quarterly and because I believe they'll increase it. Let's see how this looks in the spreadsheet. Okay, and then this is a monthly dividend tracker I have, and so you can see I just put the Home Depot video in there. The ones that are blacked out are, are stocks that I haven't revealed yet. And so you can see on 12.3 I got a Pfizer dividend check, on 12.6 I've got a Southern Company, 12.10 Chevron, 12.10 Exxon, 12.12 3M, and then 12.16 McDonald's, 12.16 uh, Coke, and then here is the Home Depot dividend check for $127.22. And there are a couple more coming 
um, this year. So far, I've received $3,771.25 for dividends. Finally, if you learned anything or enjoyed this video, then please don't forget to hit the thumbs up button and leave a comment, including your partner number, as a simple way to thank me for making this free deep analysis video of the Realty Income Rate. Adding your partner number to your comment helps me be able to then do shoutouts and visual acknowledgements of my subscribers who've watched and commented on most of my videos. With this Realty Income video, I'm partner number 26 because I've watched all my videos from start to end as well as left a comment. Thanks, and I'll see you in my next video. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So I'll see you in the next video and remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons, share this video with others, and comment below.